Morning, church. Glad to have you all with us today. We are in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9 today. Um, it's always an interesting passage. <laughs> so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. If not, it'll be on the screen for you, and you'll be able to follow along there. We read from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Let's go ahead and hear the word of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters in fe with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. Uh, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for even tricky or odd or just seemingly weird passages like this in our in our current society. Father, we know that there is application here. We know that as we spend time worshiping you through the hearing and the response to your word, that you will speak to our hearts through your word. We pray, Lord, for just that. I ask, Lord, that you would put me aside and you let your word reign in our lives today. Father, open up our hearts, challenge us, convict us, let us see what we need to do in response to your word as we go through it today. And so in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Slaves, bondservants, masters. <sighs> Boy, this is one of those great topics that you really have to have some context. Uh, you know, in real estate, it's location, location, location is everything. Within scripture, it's context, context, context is everything. Context within the time, context within the place, as well as context within what the apostle is writing to us at within Scripture. So we got to kind of go back a little bit, right? Beginning in chapter 5, as we're reading through it, Paul has begun explaining that the follower of Christ is to walk in love. We see that in 5-2, that, that that's where we've, we're coming from. And so he's, he's continuing some of these, these treads and these, these thoughts as, as walking in love. And in verse 21, he, we're called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that begins Paul's practical advice within the household for submission to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? He begins first, talks about alcohol and what that means to be submissive to one another and, and that. And then he goes into husbands and wives and he talks about parents and children. And here we are now to slaves and their masters. And why does Paul address slaves and masters? At the time that this letter was written to the church in Ephesus, it's an interesting number here. There were an estimated 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And a roughly one-third of the city of Ephesus was populated by slaves. With that many people living in slavery or being a master to a slave, it would affect the local church, right? Slaves were an integral part of the family and within the household. And so he's seeing this, right? In Ephesus, the local body of believers would have both slaves in it 
It would have masters in it, and they would have to be figuring out how do we work together. Paul has got to address this issue. He doesn't have an out here. Now, with that, we kind of need to understand something, that, that slavery within the Roman Empire was a very complex system, and it was very different, vastly different than the slavery that we understand in our more Western Hemisphere kind of hem- history. Roman slavery was not designed to create a slave class of people. It wasn't designed to segregate people that way. Now, slaves did not have as many rights as citizens, but neither did foreigners or sojourners or others as as citizens in Rome. They were just another group of people who didn't have full rights of citizenship. Roman slavery was was, was different in that way, that there were, there were those jobs and those who were slaves that were underneath Roman rule that had menial and harsh and manual labor type jobs, right, as what we think of when we think of Western Hemisphere type slavery. But then there were also those who were slaves under Roman rule who were teachers and tutors. If your family was wealthy enough, you would buy a slave to be a tutor to your children. It's kind of a weird thought. We'll leave it at that right? There were those who were even bankers within the Roman society that were slaves, right? There were property managers, there were bookkeepers, there were skilled laborers and skilled tradesmen who were slaves. Slaves under, Roman, under the Roman Empire laws could own property, and slaves could even own their own slaves. That's what new one, that, that one kind of blows my mind a little bit, that a slave could own a slave under the way the Roman law worked, right? Slaves could receive a salary and often were afforded the ability to save enough money to buy back their freedom or to even earn their freedom. And one of the things that's kind of interesting is that in Paul's time, as he's writing this letter to us, most of the time slaves were freed from their bondage by the time they reached age 30 or so that they were able to, to get enough money scrapped up and saved up to, to either pay the debt they owed, because that's what most people went into slavery for, or to, to just buy out their, their, their freedom. And when someone came out of slavery in the Roman Empire, they just blended in with the rest of society and could even climb the social ladder. Now, this is the one that, that is the most interesting to me about how Roman slavery worked and how being freed from Roman slavery worked. Felix who we we read about in Acts chapters 23 and 24. This is the governor who threw Paul in prison for preaching the gospel. Felix, who was governor in Caesarea, was a freedman. Meaning Felix, the governor of a Roman province, had been a slave at one time in his life. That's how vastly different Roman slavery worked compared to Western Hemisphere, recent history, slavery. So then you kind of have to look at this and go, so is Paul condoning slavery here? Is he silent on this issue here? Is he just kind of acknowledging that it exists? Or is Paul opposed to slavery? I think if we took a just cursory glance and just kind of looked at this at at the surface and didn't really look anything past it, it looks as almost Paul is just kind of acknowledging his slavery's existence, but is kind of silent about it. 
But I think if we keep looking at it, what we see here is Paul is working to dismantle slavery within the Christian community primarily, but he's doing so in a very subtle way. See, Paul's main concern is, as it always has been, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the salvation of those who hear, repent, and believe. That's what Paul wants. And in doing that mission and that goal, he's starting to give households and families instructions on how they submit to one another in Jesus Christ. Paul's rendering aspects of slavery invalid in doing that, though. Paul exhorts slaves and masters to glorify Christ through proper attitudes, through their work ethic, through a deep awareness of Christ's lordship over them. And slaves and masters here have a duty to serve, but to serve one another as fellow heirs of eternal life through Christ, and then to serve Christ above all else. In doing so, Paul's not condoning the existing system of slavery, but he's giving some teachings for both how being a slave and being a, how, how the believing slave, sorry, and the believing master are to honor one another and to honor Christ through this really unique relationship. They have a relationship with the Lord that must be lived out in front of everyone within the context of their social and legal culture. And as followers of Christ, they do this, and we see that this type of servitude, this kind of slavery that happens as these followers of Christ, we see that the slavery dies out in antiquity because of the influence within the church. What we really see is when Paul really gets into this, he pushes kind of hard for it in the letter to Philemon, right? This is, this is if you've not read Philemon, take the 10 minutes that it'll take you to read Philemon. It's, it's, a, it's a great short read in Scripture. But, but in Philemon, Paul's writing this letter to Philemon, and he's writing him to take Onesimus, a runaway slave who has fled from Philemon, who was the master, for whatever reason. We don't know, but he fled from Philemon. And Paul's writing to Philemon saying, Philemon, brother, take Onesimus back. He has come to me. He has come to Christ through me and what I have done with him. And now you need to take him back, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. You are equal with one another this way. He is your brother in Jesus. Take him back as he returns to you. See, Paul understands this, and and he's understanding this from, from lots of aspects, I'm sure, but he would understand that it would be natural for a Christian slave to hold up some hatred or to have some anger genuinely built up toward their master. But Paul also understands this and knows this, that there can be no room in the heart of any believer for hate or anger toward anyone in this way. It can't be there. Four different times in verses 5 through 8, Jesus is mentioned somehow, right? In verse 5, as you would Christ. In verse 6, as bondservants of Christ. In verse 7, as unto the Lord. In verse 8, received back from the Lord. We are to live all of our life, every bit of it, for Christ. Slaves are to obey their earthly masters, but not lose sight that Christ is their ultimate master. 
And Paul, by calling slaves to have this Christ-centered perspective, is reminding them to have a higher calling than just serving their human masters. They are called to serve Christ. They have been freed from the ordinary day-to-day work and are called to the extraordinary work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though they're slaves. And in their work, their day-to-day mundane work, they are to glorify Christ by working respectfully. This is a call to take the work they do seriously and reverently because they are ultimately working for Christ. Then in their work, they are to glorify Christ by working wholeheartedly. Paul says to work with a sincere heart and not by way of eye service, doing the will of God from the heart. I love this. The the bond servants, the slaves here are not to be hypocrites. Paul is speaking against the while the cat's away, the mice will play kind of attitude in our work and in their work. That labor is good. When we see God creating the world and he puts Adam in the garden, he gives him the work of the garden and it is good for Adam to do that. It wasn't a toil or a harshness until the fall. That it was a pleasing thing unto God. And Paul's reminding them here that work isn't bad in and of itself, and it doesn't matter if the boss doesn't see you being lazy or gold-bricking. God sees you being lazy and gold-bricking. And ultimately, God is the bigger boss of your life. Seeing in their work, they are to glorify Christ by working willingly, rendering service with good will. This is working without a begrudging spirit, right? This is a reminder that that the work you are doing is God's will for you in your life. Do it well. Do it with gusto. Do it with a glad and cheerful service because you are doing it for the Lord. In their work, they are to glorify Christ by working also expectantly, knowing that, yes, I can work here and I can get a salary and I can get a reward and I can move my way up the ladder, but... There's a greater reward for me coming. Followers of Christ will appear before Jesus on that day and be rewarded according to their faithfulness. And when we think about that, that that working expectantly, working toward that great goal, it should change our perspective or one's perspective on, on work and the work that one does. Then in verse 9, Paul writes to the masters, right? They are told to treat their slaves as they would treat Christ. Masters do the same to them. Masters are to do what? What exactly here? All the things that Paul has told the slaves to do. Obey earthly masters as you would Christ. Do the will of God from the heart. Render service with goodwill as to the Lord. He's reminding the masters that slaves are people who are made in the image of God. And that Christian masters are called here to treat them with dignity and and respect that goes along with being made in the image of God. Masters are to be humble. They're to be respectful. They're to be gentle. They're to show integrity in what they do. Masters are to avoid hostility. Stop your threatening. (laughs) At the time that this was written, masters genuinely still, though, even though slaves were not slaves like we think of them, they still held the power of life and death over their slaves. Beatings, imprisonment, Harsher servitude could all be given out, and the slave really had no appeal process to any of that. 
The duty of all masters and of all in authority is to do good to those who are in submission and not to take advantage of the position by threatening them. Masters are called to live out and to live with a Christ-centered accountability. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and on the good. Proverbs 22.2 says that the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all, reminding us that, that we are equal in the sight of our Lord. There's no partiality with Him. In Proverbs 29.13, the poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. See, when, when Paul is saying, knowing that he is both their master and yours in heaven, it, it should serve as a humbling reminder to us that God is the righteous judge of all. Knowing that God is the righteous judge of all is, is a sobering truth that should change the way we live. Masters are to live with fear of Christ. Masters are to remember that God is impartial. That there is no impartiality with the Lord. He will judge everyone, master and servant. See, and I like this, that when, when the masters and the slaves live in the way that Paul, through the Spirit, has called them to live, it starts to shrink that gap between masters and slaves. This is a radical way of thinking and a radical way of living within the first century Roman Empire. So then our question is, is how do we, followers of Christ today, 21st century Martinsville, Indiana, how do we apply this passage? Right? And I get that it's really easy to, to make the jump to be about employers and management and, and, and employees. I get that. And, and I do think that there is an applicable conclusion to make there. But we got to remember that, that the employee and employer relationship in 21st century United States isn't the same kind of relationship as slave and master in the first, Hellenistic, first century Hellenistic Ephesus. They are a different relationship. Now, I think one of the things that we look at and we can apply here as we see this passage is that the church should be opposed to slavery. Now, I, I get, you're like, wait a second, Michael. I remember fifth grade U.S. history, right? I remember talking about the Civil War in fourth grade Indiana history, and slavery has been abolished in the United States since like 1865. Yep, you're right. Slavery has been abolished in, in the United States and most of the modern world. And I say most of the modern world. But there's still the issue of what we call human trafficking today. I think that's a name that, that the media has given it so that it doesn't sound what, like what it is. It is a type of slavery. Now, most of us are very aware of sex trafficking and the evil, vile, disgusting thing that it is. And we see the, immediately the horrors in that, and we are instantly opposed. Good. That is a good thing to be opposed to. And we should work towards ending that as well. But what's often forgotten is that there is still labor trafficking happening around the world. Evil people prey on poor immigrants 
and they're promising them passage to new countries and better opportunities only to kidnap them for slave labor. Stealing passports, stealing all sorts of things from these folks. And we need to be opposed to that and working to see that end as well as, a, as church global and what our efforts are church local toward that. Luke 10, 27 Jesus is speaking, and, and he's talking to the, to, the, to the rich young man who comes up and asks about some questions. And, and, and the young man answers Jesus, and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, with all, and your neighbor as yourself. Talking about what is the greatest commandments. And, and this young man knew this, and Jesus says to him, Yeah, you're right. And he clarifies, though, who our neighbor is by giving us then the parable of the Good Samaritan immediately following this. Reminding us that our neighbor is not just our direct neighbor. Our neighbor is not just the person who lives next door across the street or, or across the alley. Our neighbor is the person whom we view as made in the image of God, and that should be everyone. Matthew seven twelve says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. See, we can't truly treat people the way we wish to be treated and not be opposed to slavery in any form. I wouldn't want to be trafficked for any reason. I wouldn't want to see anyone's children trafficked for any reason. Because I wouldn't want it to happen to me. So I'm opposed to that because of that teaching alone. And in 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul includes the enslavers. Some translations refer to them as kidnappers. It's kind of one of those words that works both ways in the Greek. The enslavers as vile, sinful people in desperate need of sound doctrine and salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our gospel message, the message that we came to salvation from, is a... It is a message of being set free. We were slaves to sin, and, and now we're free in Christ. Jesus came to let the spiritually captive go free. We should be opposed to slavery as a church and as church body because Christianity is a faith that releases the captives. And that's just one takeaway from this passage. There are other takeaways in this passage as well, and, and we, should, we should kind of think about these takeaways, right? That they should change the way we work, they should change the way we relate to people, and they should make us evaluate what we think is truly important in our lives. This passage should change the way we work. Now, if you're an employer, and I'm looking around the room, and I'm not seeing anybody who's not, other than Ma who's retired, an employer of some sort or an employee of some sort, sorry. If you're an employee, you're called to work through Christ, you're called to work like Christ, and you're called to work for Christ. We work through Christ because the living Christ abides in us. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We, if we live just for our families, just for our friends, and just for our jobs, we do not li and, and we, if we live only for our weekend activities, then, then we're missing out living for Christ. We're not doing what we've been called if Christ is really indwelling us. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do our jobs through His power, not our own. 
Therefore, we are to work through Jesus Christ and what He has done in us. And we work like Christ because we are looking to His work ethic that we see in Scripture. I love this. Jesus is is the suffering servant who humbled Himself and died for our benefit. Jesus emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And when Paul here calls the bondservants, calls the slaves to obey with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart, but not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, that doing the will of God from the heart, he's giving these virtues that we have seen Jesus exemplify in the Gospels. Jesus would not slack off when no one was looking. It's not in his nature. It's not who he is. Jesus would not do a task begrudgingly. Jesus would not charge anyone for extra time that he wasn't really on the clock. See, Jesus is an exemplar in how we are to be in the workplace. The Christians in the workplace should stand out. Not because we wear our faith on our sleeves, although that wouldn't hurt you, Right? We should stand out because we imitate Christ and we imitate his work ethic. We should be, as, work, as, as employees, exemplary employees, because we're modeling Christ in everything we do. And we work for Christ. Right? We see here in this passage that there's, there's really no division between your secular job and your faith. I think that's important for us to remember, that, that, that there was this, this concept within the, 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 the Protestant Reformation of, of invocatia, right? In your vocation, you were to serve Jesus where you were at, in what job you had. That you are to do what you do, where you do it, for the glory of Christ. If you're a garbage truck driver, do it for the glory of Jesus. And it's a good job to do that way. If you're a teacher, do it for the glory of Jesus. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of Jesus. We see that the the concept here is is that a person's vocation or a person's job is a is a special require or a special calling. And it requires the God-given talents that you have, the God-given abilities that you have to do that. And God has placed you where you work to bring Him glory and to make Him known. Right? I get it. Like I have a, I have a, I teach. I have a building principal. I have a, I have a school district superintendent. Technically, I work for them. Right? I have a board of of trustees that that are my employers. But ultimately, ultimately, I work for Jesus. They just write me a paycheck. Ultimately, I work for Jesus. Pastor Tony Morita says it this way. He says, you can transfer masters without transferring jobs. You can transfer masters without transferring jobs. No matter what job you have, no matter what company you work for, If you follow Jesus Christ, Jesus is your master. If you're an employer, 
right? Then you're called to lead through Christ. You're called to lead like Christ, and you're called to lead for Christ. Leading through Christ means that you're relying on the Holy Spirit for wisdom. It, it means leading with humility. It means meeting with integrity. You're gentle. You're respectful. It means leading with Christ's strength and not your own. Leading like Christ means remembering that, that Jesus isn't just the model leader. He's ultimately your master as well. Jesus executes servant leadership perfectly. He led by example. Jesus watched out for the vulnerable and he cared for them. He served in leadership rather than looking for service in leadership. Jesus is a shepherd rather than a dictator. Leading for Christ means that that even if you're not accountable to anyone else within the company or for your job, you're remembering every day that you are accountable to Christ. And you should seek to honor and glorify Him with the decisions that you make. And as a leader, you may have people to, that report to you, but Jesus is still the master that you report to. When we read this passage about slaves and bondservants, this passage should change the way that we relate to people. We see in our society that there's a, there's a hierarchy of value among individuals. Right? It's, it's there. Um, I see it often, especially since I'm in the world of academics and, and teaching. It's, it's very interesting to me. I'm, for those that don't know, I'm only the second generation in my family on either side to graduate from high school. I'm the first generation of either family on, 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 in my family on either side to, to graduate from college. Right? But I, I, I know people who are teachers and have been teachers, and they come from a long line of teachers, or, or maybe they've, quote-unquote, stepped down from some family things, that maybe their parents were doctors and lawyers, and they've become teachers, and that's a step down for them intellectually. I find that heartbreaking, to be honest, because they're creating a caste system that is not really supposed to be there. That there shouldn't be this hierarchical hierarchy of value among individuals. See, what I see here is, is when I read this passage, I see that this hierarchy of individuals is being dismantled through the church, through Jesus working in people's lives. We're all becoming equal. There may be completely different roles, but different roles does not mean a difference in value. I find it interesting how people don't like the custodian or they think lowly of the custodian until the toilet's clogged. Classroom runs out of toilet paper. These are important things. That custodian is one of the highest important people in the building in a school system. There are two people that if you really want to know who really run your school, they're not your principal and they're not your superintendent. It's your secretary and your custodian. And you treat them with all due dignity, all due respect, because they deserve it. I love watching the little videos that are out there of the little kids, the little three and four-year-old boys who think the guy that drives a garbage truck is the coolest dude in the world. And they want him to blow their horn and they get them hot chocolate on cold days. And they do all these fun things because it reminds me that my dad did that one for a while. He's a 
trash truck and and a compactor driver. But two, it's good ethical work. And they are of important value to society. And Jesus is teaching us here to treat everyone with that same level of value. We all have the same Lord. We all await the same judgment. James, the brother of Jesus, in his letter to the churches, reminds us that partiality within the church is a sin, and it is incompatible with the gospel message. As followers of Christ, we should relate to people differently than society at large relates to people. We should see everyone we look at as image bearers of the almighty God deserving that level of dignity. We should see everyone, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, as people Jesus died to save from their sins and in need of hearing the truth of the gospel. One of the reasons Calvary Heights moved to downtown is we saw the need of people here who were not being reached and were not given this kind of dignity. Church, let's not forget that. And this passage, as we read through it, should remind us and cause us to evaluate what's truly important. When I look at this passage, Paul mentions Jesus in one way or another. If I look at the whole passage, verses 5 through 9, he mentions Jesus in one way or another seven different times. Everything comes back to Jesus being our Lord and Master. Everything comes back to that. What matters most isn't how we get along with our bosses. What matters most isn't how, lo- how well we get along with fellow employees. What matters most isn't how well we get along with um, the people in our workplace. What matters most isn't how we treat those who are vulnerable. It's not about our work prestige and whether or not we're climbing the ladder. It's not about what education level we had and what our GPAs were. It's not about our politics. What matters most is here is our relationship with Jesus Christ. If you have Jesus, you have everything. Let me say that again. If you have Jesus, you have everything. Now all you need to do is work with the indwelling Holy Spirit to maintain a healthy relationship with Jesus. But if you do not have Jesus... You have nothing. Jesus himself says in Matthew 16, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus came to do something for us we could not do. He came to free us from the slavery of our own sin. And in freeing us from the slavery of our own sin, He brings us into the loving relationship with God the Father. Jesus came to make the rebel a saint. Make us no longer slaves, but sons. And not just sons, but joint heirs with Jesus. 
Jesus is the obedient servant, the best master, and sovereign God of all the universe. Surrender your life to him, and he will give you life. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you. I thank you that we can look at a, at a passage that is tough and still see that you are speaking to us through it. Father, I pray that as we spend some time doing business with you, taking this time of our call to action where we, where we look as, as a church into what we need to do, as we look into our own lives, into evaluating things, you would continue to speak to our hearts. You would make us mull over this some. Father, as we, we get ready to, to sing, let it not just be a closing song, but, but a song that is a, that is a prayer in our heart unto you. Have us take the time to, to work through Christ, work for Christ. Have us evaluate what's important to us. Have us think about how we are relating to others around us. Stir us up to repent where we need to repent and praise you where you have guided us in the right direction. Father, give us the wisdom as a church and how to best approach the people that we see hurting around us that need the love of Christ so that we may be a blessing to them and a blessing to your name and to your honor. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.